Good morning, everyone. Uh, what a pleasure it is to preach God's Word. Uh, would you join me as we continue with the prayer? Gracious God, our helper, would you by your Holy Spirit open our minds this morning that as your words are read and proclaimed, that we may be led into your truth, taught your will, and joyfully obey through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, scripture reading, I'll be reading different passages throughout the sermon today, but I'll be starting off with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Again, that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. You can turn to page 905 in the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. The church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. Always reforming, not a charge to evolve with the ever-changing time and culture, but truly a battle cry for us to continuously reform the church in accordance with the scripture. That we are to remain faithful to what God has revealed. As 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I think many of us are familiar with Martin Luther, what he did back in 1517 when he posted the famous 95 Thesis against the sales of indulgences on the doorpost of Wittenberg Church, unintentionally launching the Reformation as we know it today. But did you know that 100 years ago, someone else also sought to obey the battle cry to continuously reform the church in accordance with Scripture? We're familiar with that Roman Catholic Church placed its tradition on equal footing with the Bible in terms of authority, and as a result, the gospel was obscured. The liberal theology of the 20th century, in, accord, in accommodating to the modernism of the time, held the traditions of the time and teachings of men with such high esteem that it too began to lose sight of the gospel again. So who, 100 years ago? J. Gresham Machen published this book titled Christianity and Liberalism, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. And the thesis of the book is pretty simple. Two things, you have Christianity and liberalism. When it was actually originally published in a magazine, 
it was titled Christianity or Liberalism, pointing out that they're not the same. And in fact, liberalism is not Christianity, entirely different from orthodox biblical Christian faith. J. Gresham Machen was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1906, 1906, long time ago, until 1929, when he helped establish Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where he taught New Testament until he passed away. He also served a pivotal role in founding the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There are many things that he attacks in the book, as well as in his life, um, in attacking liberalism, there are a couple of things I want to just point out before we move forward. Uh, one basic thing that he attacks is naturalism. He says, at the root of it is a naturalism which denies the creative power of God to intervene in the world. Now, as science, industry, and technology was advancing and changing the world, the liberals sought to provide naturalistic answers to scientific objections. This still continues today. Machen continued to um, also attack against moralism because the liberals, they attempted to reduce Christianity to example, to general teachings of Jesus. Machen also attacked the anti-doctrinal tendency of liberalism, which sought to downplay doctrine in favor of personal subjective experience. Sounds familiar? Truly, there's nothing new under the heavens, right? And instead, Machen contended for doctrine, saying that it is the essence of Christianity. And in fact, the redemptive event, the historical event, serves to interpret interpretation in Scripture. Another part that he attacked was social gospel, which was pretty rampant today, and I'm going to talk more. Liberals viewed, had this utilitarian view of Christianity, um, which they sought to use to improve society, ignoring what ultimately awaits the world to come. And um, as I'll talk probably next Sunday, the second half, he really um, disliked the intellectual dishonesty of these liberals, especially those in ordained ministry, who would subscribe to creeds and confession while they're getting ordained because they have to answer um, with their fingers crossed. And after getting, um, declaring that Westminster Confession contains system of doctrine taught in infallible scripture, many would turn quickly to proceed to decry the very same profession and the doctrine of infallibility of scripture, which they solemnly just recently subscribed you might be wondering, what was happening around this time when this book was published? Well, for one thing, the United States was just coming out of this kind of uh, sort of uh, evangelical empire in the recent 19th century. But after the Civil War, now there was a greater split between the modernists versus the fundamentalists. Modernists also considered as the liberals against the evangelicals, with the liberals seeking to accommodate to the change of time 
and really holding to this idea of unbelief in the biblical truth, while the evangelicals, they sought to continue to hold on to certain biblical fundamentals, kind of adopting this strategy of minimalism. Machen knew, rightly, that accommodation to unbelief or biblical minimalism would not be effective in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ for his church. Uh, many people think of the modernist fundamentalist controversy with the famous 1922 sermon. Some of you might be familiar with this person, Harry Emerson Fosdick. His sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? But for Machen and many of his colleagues at Princeton Theological Seminary, the controversy started in 1920, a couple of years earlier, at the General Assembly with this thing called the Plan for Organic Union. You might wonder, what is this plan for organic union? Um, well, this plan was... Um, an attempt to gather the largest mainline denominations. And actually, the full title is A Plan for the Organic Union of Evangelical Churches in the United States. And it was trying to bring together Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and more for this common cause. And guess what that cause was? The common social gospel cause. The preamble of this states a common heritage of faith of the Christian church and continues by expressing the basic creedal statements um, adhering to Trinity, the Trinity, the Holy Catholic Church, salvation, of Christ, salvation in Christ and the kingdom of God, etc. This plan called for or tried to call for the association of a visible body known as United Churches of Christ. That would have real power, executive and administrative, committed to it for the furtherance of the redemptive work of Christ in the world. Now, this wasn't a plan for a federal union of churches, but an organic one, a one-church solution. Now, before, in 1908, there was already a formation of the Federal Council of Churches, which recognized each denomination with its authority, uh, with certain respects. At this time, people were getting pretty worried with the aftermath of the Civil War with influx of immigrants coming, and they wanted to promote church unity and union. They wanted interdenominational cooperation because they were concerned to preserve the Christian character of the country. Now, between 1870 and 1920, there were a series of interdenominational or church union endeavors. Just to list a few, um, you have Evangelical Alliance formation in 1867, a reunion of the old and new schools in 1869, World Alliance Reformed Churches in 1875, Presbyterian Alliance in 1877. And then you have Federal Council of Churches in 1908 that I mentioned, along with the Plan of Union in 1920. Yes, there was a division between the liberals and conservatives. However, there was this greater burden and momentum 
for church union and greater co cooperation amongst Protestant churches in America. But all of this was united under the, the, the commonality of the social gospel. Christians then, not different today, were concerned with family values, child labor, well, maybe not as much today, although in different parts of the world, that still is an issue. People, children working in factories, women, motherhood, understanding their proper roles and proper roles of domesticity in the home. In the Federal Council of Churches in, that was started in 1908, they had this social creed of the churches. And they had, within these 13-point creed set, it states that duty of all Christian people to concern themselves directly with certain practical industrial problems. First of all, for equal rights and complete justice for all men in all stations of life. Princeton Seminary at this time had a switch of leadership. Some of the structure and the governance was changed. And now you had a new president who did not, um, wasn't educated from Princeton, and he had a liberal evangelical bent, and he was the one who presented the plan to the General Assembly in 1920. Many of the faculty were against this, from Hodge to Green, Machen, Warfield, they all wrote against the plan, publishing in the magazine titled The Presbyterian. And Warfield rightly pointed out that this plan um, contained nothing distinctively evangelical at all. And Machen made a strong, compelling case for why the Presbyterian Church should avoid this union and resulted in the failure of the plan for the organic union. And from this moment, Machen played a chief role in this Presbyterian controversy. The book that was published, Christianity and Liberalism, was originally a lecture given to the Ruling Elders Association of Chester uh, Presbytery in November of 1921. Eventually, this, ad, uh, this was published in Princeton Theological Review, titled, as I mentioned, Liberalism or Christianity. And then he worked on it with the lecture and the article into a book, which was published 100 years ago. He had many things in mind. I'm sure he thought about Fosdick's sermon. But for him, he definitely had the 1920 plan of union in mind, and the whole culture of social gospel ecumenism trends that was further moving along in the nation. Alan McRae, one of the founding members of Westminster Theological Seminary, or faculty member who joined, wrote, all through the history of the Church of Christ, there has been a ceaseless struggle to maintain the truth. And I think we see this clearly in the New Testament, whether we see in the life and the ministry of, of Apostle Paul and others like Jude who calls the people to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When you look at church history, we see this too. The ecumenical creeds of the church 
were in response to the heresies of the time. The very creeds that we recite, the Nicene Creed or Chalcedonian Creeds, are examples of this reality. And the Great Confession, which, which we're learning through the Catechism, the larger Catechism right now, were born out of the, the Reformation commitment to maintain biblical truth. There are others in the 1900s called the fundamentalists who believed in the fundamentals of faith and fought for them. And they fought these five points, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of the cross, and miracles. Machen realized as he continued that Christianity has always been at war with the world, as we see in the scripture, as we see in church history, and as he also saw at his time, as we see it right now. And the answer to liberalism, modernism, and now for us, secularism, is probably the same answer he gave back then, to be faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes, Christianity is not engrossed in this transitory world, but measure all things by the thought of eternity. Such is the Christian life. It is a life of conflict, but it is also a life of hope. It views the world under the aspect of eternity. The fashion of this world passes away, and all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You might have heard the word apologetics. You might be more familiar with the word apology, but usually in the context of saying I'm sorry. But when theologians like uh, Machen speaks apologetics, he's talking about the defense of Christian faith, which was really important to him and important to his teaching, as well as, I think, eventually informing and starting Westminster Theological Seminary I think it's one of the few institutions where you can still get a PhD in apologetics, if not the only one. In 1 Peter 3, verse 16, we're familiar with this verse. The apostle writes, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's the word apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter calls us to be prepared to defend our faith and be ready to suffer for it. And when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, that's in keeping with the faith in the suffering Savior that we worship. And we are to count ourselves blessed when we experience such those are the very things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. We are to have this hope. We are to have this readiness to give an answer to the hope that we have in midst of persecution. The word apologetics has a word that many of us have heard. Logos, um, lego, speak, word, and apo, Apollo, apologetics, um, meaning the preposition to or toward, literally means to speak to. Now, in the formal philosophical legal Greek context, the word apologia meant a reasoned defense. 
the word occurs about 18 times in the New Testament. And um, often it comes up in the context of trial, where you're trying to make a defense. And 10 times um, out of the 18, it occurs in the book of Luke and Acts in the scene of Jesus' apostles' um, trial scene. And especially in Acts, it involves a presentation of the gospel. So apologetics, if you think about it, it's really apologetic for who Jesus is, the God-man that he is, and the work of redemption that he fulfilled. Apologetics is for the gospel. And that's why he taught his students to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have in him. He starts apologetics with an argument for the existence of God and scientific treatment of New Testament documents. He starts with a general truth about God and the Bible as a historical book, and then to the claims about supernatural origin of the revelation, and then finally to the full truthfulness of the Bible as the word. Bible is trustworthy. When we see that Bible is trustworthy and see that it's claimed to be the word of God, then Bible can be embraced as the word of God. If I were to give you a couple of recommendations and cite my sources for the bulk of what I'm preaching, I would say the easiest place to start would be Table Talk. The February edition has a bunch of short articles on Christian liberalism. You could probably read that real fast in one sitting. If you want to take a little bit more, um, Stephen Nichols has a great biography book, and he has a teaching series on Christian liberalism that I've learned a lot and bringing a lot from. If you want to kind of nerd out more on um, Machen's life, I would go to Ned um, Storehouse's biography. It's a thicker book, but you'll get a lot more. Um, and also, you can learn from Daryl Hart's teaching on Machen and the Presbyterian controversy. So, three points today, highlighting the first three main sections from the book. First point, doctrine. So, liberal theologians had this aversion toward doctrine. And Machen rightly appealed to Paul's teaching of doctrine, as well as Christ's emphasis on doctrine. Um, the passage we read this morning, that Pastor uh, uh, Eugene preached um, many times, or especially when we went through the series on 1 Corinthians, teaches and reminds us the objective truth of the gospel message. You have these words which Apostle Paul writes, the gospel I preached to you which you received. If you hold fast, for I delivered to you, and continuing, and I also received, there's a repetition of doctrine focus. Gospel is a teaching that is received. The Corinthians received it. Paul is sharing what he received. And he's calling it to hold fast to this word. And there are these essential facts, historical facts. And Machen always start with the historical, that there's life, there is death, there is burial, and there's resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are historical facts. And all of these are in accordance with the scriptures, which serve as a doctrinal faith for those who believe. We believe in a historical religion. Jesus taught this. Christians following taught this. And Machen would say, as those verses, Christ died. That is history. Whether you're a Christian or not, 
Christ died is history. But he continues by saying, Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. And again, he goes back and forth between what is history and what is doctrine, showing the commitment of both Apostle Paul and the teaching of Christ to the sound doctrine that we all need. And I think as um, our elder Hoyong prayed through, we reminded the importance of sound doctrine more than ever right now as we hear these still liberal theologians speaking as well as secular humanists speaking. Liberal theologians, however, posit that their version of Christianity is not a belief system that is not made of essential doctrines, but their emphasis is life experience, personal experience. It's what you do that matters. And liberalism rightly, excuse me, Machen rightly um, discerns that liberalism is in the imperative mood, telling us what we are to do. Do it. However, Christianity begins, yes, it begins with the triumphant indicative, what God is, who God is, and what he has done. I think it's very easy to notice now when we try to engage any sort of conversation, the, the so-called Christian liberals of today and the aggressive secularists of today have so many do's and don'ts telling us how we are to engage in this rule of engagement in the public now, what we must say and what we can't say, all these imperatives. However, as biblical Christians, we rejoice in the triumphant indicative as a starting point. Yes, we challenge the worldly imperatives with godly imperatives, but we start with the triumphant indicative of what God has done, and only from there do we move to um, the imperatives. Just as all, all the letters that Apostle Paul writes starts with the glorious triumphant indicative of what Christ has done, and only then does he go on to say how we are to live our lives. You can't have the imperatives without the indicatives. Yet that's the very thing that the liberals were doing. Second point, God and man. One of the things that Machen uh, lamented was the loss of the conception of God and the con- consciousness of sin. Um, he writes, the single attribute renders intelligible all the rest, and this is it, the awful transcendence of God. And when he's using the word awful, means full of awe. Awesome holiness of God is what they are losing due to liberalism. God's distinctness, his otherness, this creator, creature distinction. Now he rightly recognized, and I think we see it more now than before, that modern liberalism had this, although not fully consistent, pantheistic bent breaking down the separateness between God and the world, between God and man. And when you are wrong about who God is, it leads you to eventually the path of wrong view of man. And with the misconception of God, you now have loss of consciousness of sin. Because what? God is not holy anymore. God is not transcendent. So sin 
doesn't really matter that much to the modernists. Machen actually saw this uh, as rooted by the sinister ideology of paganism. Paganism not in a kind of a barbarian kind of nism, but basic humanism. If you think about it, um, at the height of Greek empire, paganism wasn't this grotesque thing, but it was a glorious thing that they lifted up. It was a world and life view, which found the highest goal of human existence and the healthy and harmonious and joyous development of human, existing human faculties. Basically, it's humanism at its peak, recognizing humanity as essentially good, and you know what, if you work hard enough, if you discipline hard enough, you can attain good. So it's emphasizing proper engagement and discipline of mind and body. You go to a library, you go to a bookstore, I don't know how many times you, how often you go to a bookstore nowadays, but you see a huge section of self-help book. It's about what the self can do to improve. Removing the Christian view of sin and personal guilt before the holy God. Paganism had this optimistic regard for human nature. Whereas in Christianity, it was considered rightly the religion of the broken heart. Paganism's problem is that it covers up sin in the heart. And the only solution you can find is in the inner self, inside you. I mean, how often do we still hear this? It's in you. But Christianity is different. It uncovers the sin in the heart. And the solution is not in self. It's outside of the self. So what does paganism do? It removes Christianity of any good news and replaces it with good advice, good encouragement, self-help books. You don't need forgiveness. You just need grit. You don't need godly repentance. You just need a good, wise response. Machen speaks of the gospel according to the modern liberalists this way. This is what they would preach. You people are very good. You respond to every appeal that looks toward the welfare of the community. Now we have in the Bible, especially in the life of Jesus, something so good that we believe it is good enough even for you good people. Church's response should be to reaffirm the distinction between God and man, that we rightly understand God and man on God's terms, not on our own. And I think it's important to remember these two things. One, that we need to remember the distinction, the creator-creature distinction, and reaffirm God's transcendence. Because Bible begins this way, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there was God, and then everything else came from God through his creative work. And second, this holy, sinful distinction due to the fall between God and man. So this creator-creature distinction reflecting the original created reality and the holy, sinful distinction 
reflected in the present existential reality, that if we're honest, we see and experience every day. Romans 1, Apostle Paul says, as he gives us God's word, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because what? God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the thing that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They should have. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Scriptures plainly revealed to us that all people know something about God, his existence, and his attributes. But the suppression of this knowledge results in dishonoring God, and we see this, not giving him appropriate gratitude. And as a result, what happened? The result is futile mind and darkened hearts. It's a judgment that we see now. Because God is worthy of all honor, worship, and thanksgiving. And his displeasure is just. Liberal theologians did not emphasize the knowability of God. Because if you recognize that, then you need to recognize um, the doctrine, affirming the validity of doctrine. And instead, they stressed the experience of God and the Christian in life, ignoring what God has done. Machen ended his chapter on God-man by uh, faulting the preacher of his day for not preaching repentance, not calling them to give up their pride and humbly receive the God of grace. If you ever go to a church and you hear someone preaching a different gospel, then we need to run. How often do we hear sermons like this on the internet, on places where people are preaching this sort of pseudo-gospel, where there's really no good news? And the final point, the Bible. Underlying the question concerning the gospel of grace, we come back to this question, says who? Right, the authority question. Just as in the Reformation time, Rome position itself as having the final, ultimate voice, the infallible arbiter of truth, placing church in a position to interpret the Bible. So whether it's the authoritative teaching of bishops or popes, or especially for the pope when speaking from the chair, in contrast to this, the reformers, including Martin Luther, rightly voiced their own protest. They're protesting against this, thus called Protestants. Recognizing that the church and her officers sit under the judgment of the Word of God. Because what? The church is creation of the Word. So its right place is sitting under the Word. And reformers like Luther 
and reformers like Machen rejected this sort of elevation of authority, whether popes or liberal theologians of his time. That's why we speak of and preach and emphasize Bible alone, sola scriptura, that it alone holds the authority as a supreme judge. Machen, in talking about this book, which is really critiquing at least the liberalism of the day, says that liberalism differs from Christianity and some basic fundamental views of God, man, seat of authority, and ultimately, the way of salvation. Machen defied the liberal church title to this seat of authority as reformers did when they defied the Rome's claim. He turned to Holy Scripture as a divine word, not produced by man, but as the very outbreed words of God. Because if God is truth, then his word, all of it, is truth. This doctrine of plenary inspiration, that all scriptures, all scripture is the very word of God, is what we hold on to, and we are reminded again today that scripture alone is the final seat of authority. Liberalism pride itself in rejoicing in this newfound freedom. Freedom from God. Well, since Bible it deemed as man-made, they could interpret however they want. They could define sin and salvation in their own term. But Machen wisely warned, as any wise person would, emancipation from the blessed will of God always involves bondage to some worse taskmaster. And we see this today as we see the ridiculousness in the way the whole transgender movement is playing out. He says, let it not be said that dependence upon a book is a dead or artificial thing. The Reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible, yet it set the world aflame. Dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. Dark and gloomy would be the world if we were left to our own devices and had no blessed word of God. The Bible, to the Christian, is not a burdensome law, but it's the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Jesus, in Gospel of John, chapter 17, taught the disciples the very word that were given to him by the Father. The apostles, in turn, later on, would write these words down and teach them. When we read the Bible, we're reading God's word. And as Jesus prayed, that we will be sanctified through these words. The doctrine of Bible's inspiration teaches us that God superintended by the Holy Spirit, the writing of human authors. All these writers throughout church history, excuse me, in biblical history, in writing the 66 books, all different people, different background, some different languages from Hebrew to Aramaic a little bit, and um, 
a lot in Greek, Koine Greek, God used both their personality and their experiences to give us the Holy Scripture, giving us fully divine and a human work. When we speak of verbal plenary inspiration, the word verbal here refers to that the very word of Scripture, not just the concepts are inspired, but the very words are. And the word plenary, as you might be familiar when you go to a large conference, plenary sessions are meant for what? Everyone to attend? Plenary, referring to that all Scripture, not just part of it, is inspired by God. Machen did something pretty cool to respond to the critics of the Bible during his time, and even the liberals who um, wouldn't agree valued his reason and arguments. He, Machen, appealed to the external and internal evidence of Scripture's authority and trustworthiness. He started with the external first, showing how the books of the New Testament were written early, um, silencing the critic, critics' claim that they were written late, um, not thus reflecting the teachings of Christ and the apostles, all false. And the internal evidence he pointed out, um, he, he pointed out the apostles' self-awareness as authors of Scripture, thus buttressing the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture and adding internal cohesion. It's a small step that we take from a doctrine of inspiration to the doctrine of inerrancy. Because Bible is the inspired word of God. It is without error. Bible is true because God is true. Some say that the Bible does contain errors at various points, and this is problematic because if we were to say the Bible is riddled or has any errors, we would question the character of God who inspired the very writing. Some people think Machen was a fundamentalist, but actually he was a confessional Presbyterian. There were three writings that he loved the most. He loved the Bible, rightly influenced by reading it. He loved Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure he read it more than once. And he also loved the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He knew that doctrine and life go together. And when you look at question three of Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's been a while since we went through the Shorter Catechism, it asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, that's the first part, and what duty God requires of man. The first section, continuing from question 4 through the end of that section concerning God, goes through question 4 through 38. You know what the catechism teaches us? It teaches us God as a creator. That's first, uh, questions 4 through 12. 13 through 20 teaches us the original sin that we are to recognize and the fallen state of man's nature. And the rest, question 21 through 38, teaches the glorious doctrine of Christ the Redeemer and the benefit that comes from redemption. Concerning God is what the catechism starts with, and he pretty much follows this section when he is writing his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Because what the liberals were doing is they would skip this whole section, 
what we are to know concerning God, and they wanted to go right into what's required concerning man. But how can anyone know what is required of man if we don't know who this God is? Questions 39 through 84 discusses and teaches on Ten Commandments. Um, larger Catechism, we're still going through that. Questions 85 to 97 teaches about the sacraments, baptism, and Holy Communion. And then the last set of questions ending up to question 107 teaches and explains the Lord's Prayer. Machen rightly reminds us all the more during this time that sound doctrine and holy living go together necessarily. But first, the indicative. Second, the imperative. Liberalism in trying to discard the first part concerning God is sovereignty and everything else misses out totally. Because without right biblical understanding of who God is, we can't live in a way to please God. Why does ideology like Marxism, Marxist communism not work? Because it, it fails to recognize who God is. It doesn't even recognize God, right? And when you don't recognize God, your understanding of man is skewed. And when you have a wrong understanding of man, economy doesn't work. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice in the glorious indicative of what God has done, the life and person of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And from there, may we joyfully, with hope, move to the imperative to live out the gospel for his glory. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for servants like Luther, servants like Machen, who were bold and courageous. They feared you more than the world. They loved your word more and recognized your authority through the word more than anyone else or anything else. Lord, as we continue during this year, Lord, would you increase in us a greater hunger for sound doctrine through your word, studying your word. And God, remind us to always come back to the biblical understanding of who you are, that you are indeed truly holy, holy, holy. And who we are, that we're sinners, sinful, and that we sin because we're sinful. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, we're given this gift of salvation, reconciliation through the Son. Lord, help us to trust your word more and more. Help us to love your word more and more. And we thank you that our hope is not in ourselves, but in you who began the good work, that you're going to be the one faithful to finish. Christ Jesus, we pray.